welcome to HealthCast. I'm your host, Faith Ryan. Here's a recap episode on our digital health modernization virtual event, in case you missed it. During our event last week, federal leaders shared efforts to improve digital health data, technology, and services amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Congressman Michael Burgess kicked off our event with a fireside chat, emphasizing that health information should flow between providers for patients. The siloing and fragmentation of data um, between the public and private sectors, it really does not benefit the patient, and really that's where our focus should be. It should be for the benefit of the patient. Burgess also said that health information should be easy to access and electronically portable for patients. As directed by Congress in the 21st Century Cures Act, the HHS Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT has made a lot of progress in this area. ONC Chief Clinical Officer Dr. Andrew Gettinger explained that one of the main challenges with sharing health information is a lack of data standards. The agency is addressing this challenge with the help of APIs and HL7 fire specifications, as he explained during our first panel discussion on democratizing public health data. Clinical data has not been adequately standardized. So we have identified certain standards that all of the electronic health record health IT developers have to abide by. More importantly, we have made it easy to get data out by specifying the standards and without getting jargony, um, open APIs without special effort. And we define the open API without special effort as the latest version of FHIR but F-H-I-R. Providing complete sets of data to the people who need it has larger clinical implications than simply sharing data between facilities and devices. Ultimately, it could determine whether a drug or medical device is safe and provide clear, real-time data on a patient's health, or aggregate health data to effectively respond to public health crises like the current pandemic. It is a standard that allows content to move seamlessly. When that content is then available, instead of depending on things like randomized clinical trials that maybe multi-centered 5, 10, 15 entities may be reporting on in a big trial, 5,000 to 10,000 patients, we can imagine getting clinical data that um, pertains to hundreds of thousands of patients or millions of patients, and then inform us in terms of what works, what doesn't work, what's the current therapy. And that, if we had that infrastructure in place now, we would be able to respond to any public health threat much more expeditiously and with much more confidence that we understood how the knowledge is evolving rapidly and changing rapidly. Furthermore, ONC released its final rule to advance interoperability and promote electronic health information sharing between providers in June, while the compliance date is set for November 2nd. For the National Library of Medicine, part of the National Institutes of Health, CIO Ivor D'Souza further emphasized the importance of open data to complete data sets to advance scientific knowledge and understanding. You know, there are some default practices that, that are very uh, much embedded in, in how we conduct business. Uh, one of those is, of course, uh, make sure that uh, all data is publicly free and open. Uh, and, and, the, and the other part I would say is we try to make data available in multiple format types. So these are just our default practices. 
D'Souza added that these practices to democratize data access are key components of transparency and data reproducibility, following fair data principles, making data findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. Likewise, HHS's Deputy Chief Data Officer Kevin Duvall explained how the agency is making COVID-19 data publicly available in ways that it's never done before to foster community collaboration and rapidly respond to the pandemic. As the, the virus and the federal response has evolved, we've also had to change kind of our data release and approaches. As, this, as the name suggests, the virus is novel. It's, it's something that's, you know, something we haven't really quite seen uh, before. And so our response on the data side has required us to adapt in kind of real time to the, the needs of the scientific community. Um, we've changed what data we've collected, um, and, and that's a result of better understanding the virus and better understanding kind of the needs of, um, of the healthcare community and the scientific community. Um, the, the one other side of that, so that's, you know, one side, which is the healthcare. It's also spawned a, um, a whole world of kind of citizen data activists. Um, I've met a whole bunch of people that, uh, frankly, I would, would have never met before. Um, who want to really provide tools and visibility and insight into what's going on with COVID-19. And a lot of them are volunteering. Um, and, and so we've chatted with many of them and, and they should be really proud of their work because it's showing and, and having people understand what's going on in their community, what's going on in their environment using some of our data. In addition to connecting hacktivists and researchers together, Technology is also playing a vital role for people struggling with mental health during this time. In our second panel discussion on mental health, Paula Del Vecchio, the Director of Management Technology and Operations at the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, explained the severity of the crisis as it relates to mental health illness, such as depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder, even suicidal thoughts. We have uh, the COVID pandemic, but there's also a corresponding mental health pandemic that we really are experiencing in this country. And CDC data, as you said, says up to half of all Americans are experiencing significant mental health disorders right now. Many agencies and providers are now following a digital-first model to provide telehealth to meet patient demand and safely give people the clinical and psychological support they need. But you consider things like support groups, AA and the like, and now people are having to go online in order to get the services. So for mental health care and addictions treatment care, it's completely flipped how we provided services. And, you know, there's a huge need for both the kind of care and services we're providing. And, uh, you know, technology is stepping up uh, to help provide that kind of support. SAMHSA is also partnering with the Federal Communications Commission and the Department of Veterans Affairs on suicide prevention. Wrapping up September Suicide Prevention Month, Devecchio said one of the most important efforts for next year is creating the three-digit 988 number for the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, which will also include a line for connecting veterans who are suicidal to VA services. With the increased use in telehealth services across the active military and veteran populations, the Defense Health Agency also developed smartphone apps and virtual resources to help doctors and physicians on the front lines of this pandemic deal with stress. DHA's Connected Health Director, Simon Pincus, explained more. So we um, had uh, some uh, applications that you could put on your, on your smartphone to help with dealing with stress. 
we noticed that providers were under a lot of stress. So we created a, a provider resilience toolkit, which is a, is a mobile application, and it's a suite of tools that allows for providers to do things like um, uh, meditation or, or breathing. And we saw a 350% increase in the use of that particular tool by providers. We have a virtual health hope box, which is really the what we took a lot of our provider resilience toolkit from. And it really is um, a way for patients to um, interact with uh, mobile apps to manage their stress um, and anxiety and also create safety plans. And um, there's um, things that they would tell themselves to do if, if they were overstressed, because when you're really stressed, you tend to get tunnel vision. And so mm -hmm. they could actually pre-plan uh, how they might respond or who they might call. DHA is also looking into predictive analytics and AI to determine who is most at risk for suicide and other mental illnesses. So currently what we have is a, is a behavioral health data portal, which is patient-entered data. So when we look at uh, artificial intelligence, what you're looking at there is sort of getting huge data sets that then could be uh, looked at for how they translate to a, a given uh, population. Mm -hmm. And then you want to take that to predictive analytics. How might that apply to this particular patient? So we're doing really well with, with looking at populations right now with those tools. Mm -hmm. um, we're not there yet where we're able to take all of that data and put it in, in one location to really mm -hmm. do the, the kind of predictive analytics that you're talking about. Finally, we heard in the last panel about how the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services is preparing for a surge of people looking for health insurance coverage on the federal marketplace, healthcare.gov, during this year's open enrollment period. CMS Deputy CIO Bobby Saxon explained that the complete move to the cloud for the website just a year earlier enabled the agency to be well prepared for the increase in web traffic. One thing that we are going to do for this upcoming open enrollment, which is a month from today, is prepare ourselves to be ready for a surge of new uh, stakeholders, new customers coming to the website because of what's happened over the last six months with uh, the pandemic. In an old environment, it would have been almost nearly impossible to do the kind of expansion for to improve uh, performance and uh, stability. But in the cloud, we have upsized our capability or we will have it upsized our capability to two and a half times normal because we're in the cloud. Jessica Whedon, a U.S. digital services designer and project lead for CMS's Medicare payment system modernization, said that the cloud allows CMS to scale multiple systems in one accessible environment and enables the agency to achieve and maintain operational flexibility and agility. When you have this modern system, you can implement those changes much faster, rely less on manual labor, um, and provide greater visibility and closer to real-time data if uh, that is all available in the cloud um, in a way that it takes much longer right now in the mainframe. Whedon also noted that focusing on modernizing these systems in which multiple users are involved using human-centered design, as well as moving data to the cloud, are critical to achieving CMS's main objective, which is to improve patient care, particularly for its beneficiaries. These 
people who are using the systems are using them on behalf of CMS to pr provide a service to clinicians, to doctors. Let's talk about how, you know, what pains we're addressing have that impact and, and work it all the way out. And then also talk about how it impacts the rest of the business functions at CMS. You know, it, it drives the data that's in these systems, drives fraud, waste, and abuse, um, you know, program integrity. It drives these beneficiary-facing systems. You know, this data can feed um, mymedicare.gov or um, Blue Button or data at the point of care, uh, which impacts care coordination and understanding of your benefits. And if we're not actively seeking out all of these people who are using the data that comes from these systems. We can't understand how to best support all of these different people, and we know that they're going to be impacted. Uh, and so human-centered design kind of gives you the tools to, to map that out and think through that. Um, and yeah, I think that's crucial for any of these backend type problems. These were the many highlights from our two-hour-long digital health modernization virtual event last week. Still, there's a lot of ground to cover, and these digital health efforts continue to rapidly adapt and change with the current situation we're in. So be sure to listen, like, and subscribe to the HealthCast podcast to keep up to date on what's going on in federal health IT. HealthCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentciomedia.com slash podcasts. If you liked what you heard, let us know by leaving a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. HealthCast is produced by Amy Kluber, hosted by Melissa Harris, Adam Patterson, and Faith Ryan. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com.